This is Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers, brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now here is your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Ken Samuel is the only person I know who has founded a megachurch. He did so years ago, Victory for the World Church in Stone Mountain, Georgia. The church took off. This was in the heyday of megachurches when every seminarian felt like, or many did at least, felt like that's what they ought to be doing. Ken did it, 6,000 members in a few short years, more than that even. Then he had this startling realization and came to the conclusion that he was not being true to his own convictions or to the way in which he felt and saw God moving in the world. So Ken pivoted and became the first Southern Baptist convention preacher, one of the first African-American preachers to begin proclaiming a liberationist gospel for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer Christians. The results were amazing cataclysmic, dramatic. We'll hear that whole story and about the way in which Ken's courage and faith only grew. Here he is, Ken Samuel. I want to jump right in and ask you about a sermon that you recently preached um, titled Keep On Coming. And in that sermon, you, you proclaimed this deep love that you have for the church. It was quite obvious that the church, not only Victory for the World, but the church with a capital C is remarkably important to you. Where did that love for church come from? I was reared in the church, um, raised in the church uh, from a boy. Uh, My family was uh, very religious. Uh, My mother um, was a mother of the church. And uh, so uh, church was like a second uh, home to us. Um, Back in the day, um, there was no negotiation with kids about whether or not we were going to church. Uh, It was just a given. Um, I remember my mom saying, if you are too sick to go to church, you will be sick until next Sunday. So that meant that you would only be well enough to get to school and after school, no playing, no baseball, no stickball, no handball, no parties on Friday and Saturday. And then when you were well enough to go to church on Sunday, then you could be back to your routine uh, the following week. So it was it was just something that was ingrained. Now, um, I did rebel against the church. Um, I thought that it was so much entertainment, and I didn't really think that it was really um, relevant um, in terms of addressing the needs, particularly the economic and political and social needs of black people. Is that um, something you felt as a, as a kid, as an adolescent or a young man? When did those feelings start to surface? Yeah, well, you know, I, as a child, like I said, I didn't really have a choice in going to church. When I went to college um, and started uh, studying uh, Marx <laughs> and um, uh, so forth, and, you know, Marx's critique of the church, um, I, I just thought that it rang true in so many ways. Um, and I did see the church as an opiate of the people. Um, so I stopped going and um, just decided that uh the best way for me to address the economic and political concerns of black people would be to do it through the law. Um, And just kind of, um, you know, looked upon the church as a nice place to be, but so much entertainment. Mm. What kind of church did you grow up in? Where were you going that, that, that led to that critique? 
I attended a holiness Pentecostal church, uh, Church of God and Church of God in Christ, um, where the services were very vibrant. The music was very uh, moving. Uh, the sermons were uh, very powerful um, in terms of their you know, emotional content. Um, uh, but like I say, didn't hear much about the relevancy of religion for social change. When, then, when you were in college and you had that sense of the insufficiency of, of what was being proclaimed, um, did your faith like wane at the same time or did you continue to have a, a did Marx destroy your, your, your whole thing or just your, your respect for the church? Did God still, no. Was God still out there for you or with you? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, Marx didn't really destroy, um, you know, my my faith. I mean, I still had faith in God. Um, I just felt that the church was just not designed to, uh, like I say, address the real needs. Um, and so, and I still went to church, just not as often, and didn't take it as seriously as I once had as a as a as a young child. Mm. So, you know, I felt the church had a place, but a place like you know, going to an entertaining movie like that has a place, or going to a good concert, you know, that has a place, but it's not necessarily going to change your world economically, politically, and socially. And the church ought to be subject to that criticism at a level different from other forms of entertainment, right? Because it claims to be something quite different than a movie Precisely. or a concert. Um, do you think that critique still applies? Well, um, in college, interestingly enough, um, it was my uh, kind of um, relegation of the church to a level of entertainment that um, kind of compelled me to want to study more about religion. And, um, you know, even though I grew up, you know, in the, in the 70s and so forth, um, didn't really know a lot about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And from New York, um, you know, Malcolm X was our hero, not necessarily Martin King. Uh, New York City, Malcolm X was the man. Yeah. And of course, his critique of the church, you know, resonated with a lot of things that Marx said, interestingly enough, um, at least initially, his critique of the church. So um, I took a course in religion, and um, uh, I remember for the first time hearing the phrase liberation theology. Had never heard of that before. And uh, so I uh, started reading James Cone and started reading Martin Luther King Jr. and um, discovered that religion could play a major role in um, social transformation and social change. And so um, my readings, particularly of James Cone and um, O'Freire, you know, the liberation movements in Latin America, um, and of course, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, uh, blending of his theology with his social justice work, you know, that just opened up a new world to me. And then I was quite fascinated with, um, with religion and its, and its potential impact for social change. When you think to the to the early cone and what you might have been reading back at that in that era, um, and from what I recall from reading him quite a while ago, but it stuck with me, that claim he makes, which is so powerful, that the resurrected Christ resides with black people and is evidenced and and he's made manifest in the in the lives of black people and in the black community, did that ring like immediately true for you? Did that? As a as a theological, not so much as like a strategy for liberation, but rather as a as a truth as a religious truth claim. Did it 
hit you in the heart? Oh yeah, that was that was that was very impactful for me, um, because as I said, my concern was with you know with all of the jubilation and joy that we experienced in church, growing up in the ghetto in New York and in you know an impoverished area in South Carolina, um, I still did not see how what went on on Sundays and Wednesdays and Fridays and all the other times we went to church. I still didn't see how that was improving our economic and 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 social lot so there was a great disconnect there so when 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 james cone talked about you know black being um uh black being an identity uh for god um in human struggle um uh, being an identity which is which is really an experience of suffering and and really you know talked about god's identity with blackness you know, um, as an existential and, and a metaphysical experience, that was just, uh, you know, amazing to me. Um, and like I said, it really opened the door to help me to see the role that religion and faith could play in social change. So then when you got done with seminary, um, you started your own church. And was that yeah. rooted in that same desire to say, all right, the church of my childhood and my adolescence fell short in these areas? Well, I'll tell you how that happened. Um, no, uh, yes and no. So I had, I had this liberation theology in my mind. Um, by the time I graduated from seminary, I have to admit that that was not foremost on my mind. By the time I graduated from seminary, um, uh, building a mega church was foremost on my mind, mm. interestingly enough. Um, and so I set out to do that, and I set out to do that by aligning myself with um, the Southern Baptist Convention, which was a major, um, and still is, you know, the major Baptist denomination, you know, in Georgia, and um, kind of being duly aligned with the National Baptist Convention, which is the which is a black convention, but still very similar to the Southern Baptist, and. Um, <sighs> But you, you know, started, but you started as an SBC pastor, though, not not as a National Baptist. Is that right? I started as an SBC slash National Baptist. Okay, so I was dually, yeah, 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 dually aligned there, and and I went, like I say, my my foremost on my mind was was building a mega church. You know, it was the time of of the of the emerging mega church. You know, I'm talking about early '80s. Uh, I mean, with thousands and thousands of members. And that was really on people's minds and lips. Strangely enough, even in a progressive place relatively like Candler, people were talking about, you know, the major the, the major mega churches uh, that were emerging at the time. And um, so, you know, I was I was I, I was I, I got caught up in that and thought that that's what I would do. And that's what I did, I, st I was called initially to a little church called Traveler's Rest. Um, and um, That's uh, a great name for a church. I like that. <laughs> I know. Isn't it interesting? Traveler's Rest. And unfortunately, that name was reflective in the people's mindsets because they were <laughs> pretty much content to just kind of rest where they were. Well, I, I will say that the older leadership of the church was, it was a small church, maybe about 250, 200, 200 250 people. This was in Atlanta also? It, it, yeah, and it was just outside of Atlanta in a suburb that we called DeKalb called Scottdale. 
Um, and uh, so started pastoring that church. Did not know when I was called that the previous pastor had left under, um, you know, a, a cloud of controversy regarding um, relocation, which is one of the worst fights that any church can engage in, you know, whether or not you stay where you are and try to make it work or whether or not you follow the demographic trends and go to areas that um, can uh, better financially sustain the church, basically. Um, so a lot of the younger persons, um, children of the older guard, were moving out to what we call at that time Greater DeKalb, which is where African Americans were moving out, you know, to in the area at the time. Stone Mountain, Lithonia, where Victory is now, um, uh, you know, moving out into these areas. This is in the 80s. Um, but it would our neighborhoods were still transitioning. Uh, Scottdale was historically black community and the older guard felt more comfortable in staying where they were small little building nice little plot on a hill the younger people wanted to branch out uh and so uh, in the midst of this controversy i was able to call both sides together and um we decided that those who wanted to remain in scottdale at the original uh uh location could do so, and those who wanted to leave could also do so because the church had saved lots of money for this move. Um, mm. and so there was enough money for those who wanted to leave to take what was needed to buy another facility in another part of town, but the name Traveler's Rest had to remain <laughs> with the original church, and the building could not be sold. So that was the agreement we made. And so I took a group and moved them out, more of the younger crowd, and we moved out. And I named the church New Birth Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, and that name might sound familiar because that's where Eddie Long pastors now. I was oh, actually yeah. Eddie, Eddie Long's predecessor at New Birth. I named New Birth. Well, when we moved, the church exploded. Um, and I mean, we went from a few thousand, I'm sorry, we went, sorry, went from a few hundred to a few thousand. So when Eddie Long got there was really probably about 1500 to 2000 people. What prompted, well, what prompted your departure? Uh, from Traveler's Rest? Yeah, no, from uh, New Birth. Oh, okay. So I'm getting to that. Uh, it was, um, New Birth was even though these were the children of the old guard, they still had the same mentality. So in their thinking, the pastor was a hired person, one who was hired by the deacons. And But the deacons actually ran the church. The pastor just preached. Mm. That was their thinking. Well, now that was antithetical to my upbringing because I told you I was raised holiness Pentecostal where the elder or the bishop did much more than just preach. The elder or the bishop actually ran the church. And so, um, you know, to come into a context, a Baptist context where, you know, the pastor just does the bidding of the board was something that I was not uh, orient, oriented to do. And quite frankly, really didn't handle it well. I probably should have done more homework on Baptist polity than mm. I did, than just assuming that, you know, I would be able to kind of impose, you know, a holiness Pentecostal model into a Baptist context. Yeah, those things run uh, deep. Now, 
Yeah. Now, it's not to say that, you know, Baptist pastors don't necessarily, you know, do more than preach. But a lot of that takes time. A lot of that takes, you know, attrition. A lot of that takes, you know, just kind of proving yourself to the membership. And I was just naive enough to think that, you know, the preacher just by his title, um, you know, alone gave him the authority to really manage things. And of course, that was a big mistake. But um, it was a it was a it was a. It was, a, it was a board-led church, and um, so we clashed. And I remember on one occasion where um, I was invited to do a revival uh, up in New Jersey, um, the board uh, said, you can't do it because if you do it, we're going to consider that your vacation. Mm. And so I had those kind of clashes with the board. Well, I went on ahead and did the revival, and while I was away, the deacons called a meeting and fired me in my absence. Oh, no. Yeah, so I got a call up in New Jersey saying, okay, the deacons just called a meeting and they fired you. So, um, uh, you know, I had a choice. I could have I come back and fought it, you know, got a lawyer and all that. And they were talking about, you know, the quorum and the fact that, you know, how do you fire a pastor? He's not even present all that. But instead, I decided to um, not fight with them anymore about that. I decided to just organize victory and let them go on with that. Well, when Eddie Long came, he eventually had to dismiss the whole board. So he probably knew more church politics, knew, knew more about <laughs> church politics than I did. But yeah, he eventually had to get rid of them because he would have never been able to um, really lead uh, with, 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 with the board basically um, uh, orchestrating things the way they were. You so told, that's that, kind of, that happens so often where in church yeah. life where one pastor will, you know, suffer at the hands of congregational dysfunction and that kind of surfaces it right and then the next the next person um gets to solve the problem but the the problem the problem is kind of like like identified through a prior call not working out so you so you started victory Mm -hmm. then like from started nothing, victory. right? I mean, you weren't started victory from church. nothing. Yeah, right. Wow. Started victory from nothing, and you know, a few members, you know, came over from from New Birth. Uh, many of them went back because you know people kind of have edifice complexes, you know, so they like nice buildings and campuses. We didn't have any of that, so some of them came over to see what we're doing and went back. But no, we just began to grow and you know and just began to um, you know build a community, which is what we did, and then eventually we was able to get some property and just grow from there. So. Then about um, 15 years ago, we built our current um, uh, site, the worship center and the gymnasium. But all during this time now, I still have theology, I still have liberation theology in the back of my mind. But my aim is still to build a a mega church. Did those two so things feel incompatible it. to you? Like, um, would it be? Were you thinking it would be possible to build a mega church that is a liberationist, or did they feel like uh, like a, like you had to make a choice between those two? Well, you know, at the time, I don't think I was even preaching much liberation theology. Like I said, it really just took a backseat in my mind because in order to, if you're if your focus is on members and money, then the last thing you want to do is introduce anything controversial mm-hmm. or. Or, or critique the status quo in any kind of significant way. I mean, the re- the reason you you build mega, you build you 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 drive money and numbers by avoiding any kind of controversy, and you don't you don't address anything that's controversial. Well, you can't do social justice that way because social justice is all about social transformation and challenging, you know, speaking truth to power. Uh, so, 
Um, but my my conscience eventually caught up with me. Um, I had uh, the, the church grew to about 6,500 members, and we were well on our way to being, you know, the next mega church in Atlanta uh, or in the metro Atlanta area. But my consciousness did catch up with me because I kept hearing God saying, you were discounting the church because of the church's um, ineffectiveness in addressing issues that impact everyday people's lives, particularly in areas of social justice. And here you are building a mega movement that says nothing to anybody about the need for um, uh, you know, addressing injustices in society. And uh, uh, I, 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 I recalled that I had a friend, I was, when I was, let me see, I guess I was 15, I had a friend who was 17 who committed suicide mm. because he was gay. Mm. And before he died, a week before he, he took his life, he told me, he said, you know, nobody really cares for me. Nobody really loves me. And I'm like, man, you're tripping. And he's like, no, he said, my parents don't love me. He said, and the church doesn't love me. Well, I knew what he was talking about because we were raised in a church where it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And, you know, and if, you know, God is going to send you to hell if you, you know, embrace anything other than, you know, heterosexual, you know, heterosexism or heterosexual lifestyle. Um, so I knew what he was talking about, but I really didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to entertain that. So mm-hmm. I just so he felt like even God didn't love him. He told me. He said God doesn't love me. He said nobody loves me. Well, after he said that, and I kind of brushed it off. The next thing I hear the following week is that he took his life, and I knew what that was about. So I remember going to his funeral at the church, and I remember people wailing and weeping, and I remember saying to myself at the time. There's something wrong with this because I knew that what drove him to take his life, a big part of it was the condemnation that he heard from the pulpit on a regular, almost weekly basis. Uh, And, you know, just basically saying that if you embrace anything other than a heterosexual lifestyle, you were you were you were you were bound to go to hell. Mm-hmm. You were an abomination. You were an aberration. There was something wrong with you. You needed psychological help. You needed spiritual deliverance. And we heard these messages constantly. And there so you I'm, were grieving him in, in the place that killed him, right? Precisely. I mean, yeah. Oh. There we were, you know, people weeping and wailing and talking about how much they loved him, but nevertheless being responsible for, you know, his, 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 his suicide. Uh, And I knew that there was something deeply wrong with that. Didn't have the words to express it. But when I'm going now, fast forward now, I got built this mega church. And it's like I'm hearing him say to me, you couldn't do anything about my death, but now you are in a position to help save somebody else's life. And I'm hearing him say this to me while I'm pastoring this mega church. And I think that's what drove me to say, okay, I cannot continue to to um, kind of pimp the gospel for my own profit or, you know, for my own prestige and power. Yeah. And I really need to get back to what God called me to do in the first place, which is to try to um, uh, be a part of a religion that's, that's, that's committed 
to making people's lives better and working for social change. So uh, I began to um, alter, you know, my preaching a bit, you know, not so much, you know, only the, you know, in God good and personal piety and, you know, and we, you know, we're walking in divine favor, but now what is our social responsibility to our brothers and our sisters? And how do we translate our spiritual energy and vibrancy into, um, into, into changes that, that, that honor everyone for who they are as people and children of God? Uh, so the first thing I did was address the issue of, of patriarchy and sexism in the church. And I started preaching about that. And I started preaching about, you know, the patriarchy that's even embedded in the text and, you know, the patriarchy that's practiced in the church by the fact that, you know, the church is 70, 75 percent female. And yet women are not honored enough to be allowed to serve in certain leadership positions, namely deacons ministry and and pulpit ministry. Uh, because in the Baptist church, you know, women women won't serve as deacons, and they definitely don't serve as pastors and preachers. So um, I, I I decided that I would, since I organized the church, I gave myself um, power to appoint officers. So I appointed a couple of women to the deacon ministry. And you were it was victory aligned with the SBC and the National Baptists. Yes. Also, yes. Okay, great. All of that was all of that was against SBC doctrine. Right. And National Baptist doctrine. So, you know, that sent ripples throughout the congregation because that was not, you know, as they say, that this is not Baptistic. <laughs> so uh, but I appointed them. And so, you know, you got a tremor. And, uh, you know, I got men and women saying, you know, this is out of order and we don't know what's going on here. But this is not this is not this is not in keeping with Baptist doctrine, what you're doing these women serving. But I did it, and so you had a tremor, and you had some fallout. But, you know, I guess people were kind of, you know, saying, okay, now what's going on here? Well, about a year after I did that, um, I just, you know, really broke the camel's back by talking about LGBTQ equality and um, decided that I would um, appoint um, an openly gay woman to the deacon's ministry. Well, that was just, that that was more than what most of the people could bear. Now we're talking about, you know, we're talking about now. Yeah, what year was this? During, yeah, we're talking about now uh, 90s, you know, uh, early to mid 90s. So you so, are, so let me, let me contextualize this. You are the pastor of a burgeoning yeah. African-American Southern Baptist megachurch mm-hmm. in right. Georgia. In Georgia. Going right in the teeth of the SBC teachings on LGBTQ inequality, right? And Precisely. Um, Precisely. Did you know what you were setting off when you did this? I mean, did you have a sense of, like, this is going to be an, a, a potentially fatal controversy for the life of this church? You know, I honestly felt when I did it that if I could educate the people and help them to understand what I had studied in seminary uh, and gave them a better means to interpret the gospel through lenses of liberation, I really thought that people would understand and, and, and do so. I had no idea that, you know, tradition meant more than truth and insight to people. I when had you no. Look, when you look back on that moment and that calculation, 
do you feel like you were naive, optimistic? I, mean, I was I was I was overly optimistic and very naive because I really thought it was just a matter of educating the people. And so I was steadfastly trying to educate. I was having not just preaching sermons, I was doing Bible studies, I was trying to help people to understand, you know, um, you know, interpretive principles and all of that, uh, helping them to understand how just as uh, scripture at one time was interpreted to deny black people equal rights that it has also been used to deny women and gay people equal rights. And I tried to get them to see the parallels there. They were not having it. Most people were not having it. They, it was like, they could see the black part. They could see the racism, but they could not, they were not getting with the, with the, with the patriarchy and with the, um, and with the uh, heterosexism. They just, they just refused to see that. And of course, Were you in dialogue uh, with, with, uh, white church leaders, liberals who were having their own parallel movement at that point. But I mean, I think about like the first church I served, I took it through the, the UCC open and affirming process in the late nineties, early two thousands. And it was a, I mean, the stakes were not as high. That was, this was a church that in some ways to, to, I mean, kind of flipped the script completely. It was a growth strategy at some level for us um dying neighborhood kind of blue collar german church in chicago and even that even in that context where the the people didn't take the bible very seriously one way or the other so they weren't you know the the opposition was maybe a sort of like latent cultural homophobia Mm -hmm. but it was not asking people to understand their religion in a profoundly different way which is what you were doing Uh, but even in that context it was it was heavy lifting back then um so I can't imagine uh, how isolated you must have felt. Were you in touch with, um, well, white liberals who were doing the same thing? You know what I mean? Like, or, or other, yeah. other African-American church leaders who were thinking about this? Or did you just feel like a voice in the wilderness? No, I really, I really felt like a voice in the wilderness. I'm trying to think during that time. I know I was doing a lot of reading. Um, I, was, I, was, I was reading um, Taylor Branch's trilogy on on America during the King years. I remember reading that during the time. Didn't really have a lot of people to talk to at that time because even Carlton Pearson, um, who's, a, who's a good friend of mine now, had not reached his point of, of, of consciousness in regard to these, in, in regard to the LGBTQ uh, uh, issue in particular. But I remember reading um, Taylor Branch's trilogy during that time, the deacons and trustees called me into a meeting and they said, you know, what you decide to believe on a personal basis is your business. But when you step into the pulpit, now, mind you, this is a church that I started. These are all people that I've appointed. But at this point, uh, you know, I know that you've got to have a check and balance. So by the time you get to, you know, 6,000 plus members, you know, you got to have boards that actually have authority to make decisions. So even though I appointed them, you know, they still had fiduciary responsibilities. So they called me in and they said, um, you know, we love you. And, you know, whatever you decide to think is your business. But when you come to the pulpit, you will you you need to be mindful that what you say um, affects the bottom line of the church. And uh, uh, and they said, here's what here's what you're going to do. They said, you're going to get up this Sunday, and you're going to apologize to the congregation for this liberation theology, whatever you're saying, because we 
started as a Baptist church, Southern Baptist, National Baptist. That is what we want to remain. That is what we signed up for. We're not interested in liberation theology. I was even trying to introduce them to the UCC um, because uh, 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 a friend of mine had told me that, you know, that that's a progressive uh denomination. So I was trying to, you know, get them interested. And I even invited, you know, the conference minister to come and speak. Uh, the officer said, you know, that's not, that's not where we want to go. We want to, we, 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 we started as a Baptist church. We want to continue as a Baptist church. And we want you to preach Baptist theology, traditional Baptist theology from the pulpit. So I apologize to the congregation. We will send letters to all the members who have left telling them that to apologize, reaffirming our stance as a Baptist church, following traditional Baptist doctrine and theology. And we're going to try to do what we can at this point to get our members back on board so that we can sustain um, uh, this, you know, this, this compound, this, 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 this campus. Uh, and so I'm, I'm listening to them. I'm in a meeting now. They're about, I guess they're about 60, 70 people in the room. I'm, I'm in a meeting and they, this is what they present to me. And so I, my, I mean, my mind is racing and I'm like, I'm sitting there. And as I'm sitting there, because I'm reading Taylor Branch's book, I think I was on the last part of the trilogy, uh, parting, um, what is it? Parting the water, not parting the waters, but, um, Whatever the last fire? piece is, the fire next year, pillar fire. Is it pillar pot, pillar fire? Hmm. I, whatever the last trilogy is, the last part of trilogy. That, that's what I was reading. So that's now 1968 during that period when Dr. King is facing opposition because of his decision to um, address uh, the injustice of the Vietnam War. Right. And. Um, you know, took a departure from just talking about race relations to talking about international justice and, you know, American imperialism. And his people and, did not like that. Not and, all his of them general, and his generals called him into a meeting. His lieutenants called him into a meeting and said to him, Dr. King, if you don't stop speaking against the Vietnam War, and in particular speaking against uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who black people like because he signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. We like him. If you do not stop your critique of Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Vietnam War and get back to talking about black and white together, we shall overcome, we're not going to be able to raise any money and SCLC is going to go bankrupt. Hmm. And Dr. King's response was, I will not lower my voice to raise SCLC's budget. So I remember that line when I'm in this meeting with my own deacons and trustees. And I said to them, I said, as officers of the church, deacons and trustees, I understand you have fiduciary responsibility, and I understand that you have to do what you think is in the best interest of the church. I said, but I also have to preach my conscience, and I cannot go back to preaching what I do not believe in order to generate funds for this institution. So I will not apologize for anything that I've said in regard to God's inclusive love for all people, regardless of gender, race, or sexual orientation. I said, I will not apologize for that. I will not write a letter uh, uh, stating that I'm going to go back to traditional Baptist the doctrine and theology. I said, I will not do that. I said, you, can, uh, you have to do what you have to do. I said, but I have to 
do what I have to do. And when I said that, I mean, there was silence in the room. I mean, like a, like a deafening silence. Did they expect that you would be called to heal? I mean, they expected you to acquiesce to, to what they were Oh, of demanding. course. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, I, I kind of expected me to acquiesce, too, because, I mean, they, were, I mean, they just they gave, me a, they gave me a very stark ultimatum. Uh, so, but when I, when those words came out, because I was really just, just telling them what I really believed. And for some reason, that kind of episode just dropped into my spirit, you know, with Dr. King and, and, and his lieutenants. And so I said, you know, you have to do what you have to do, but, but I, but I have to preach my conscience and I, and I'm not going to do anything other than preach my conscience. Uh, so silence. One of the deacons said, stood up and said, now you do understand that we're going to have to make some serious cuts in the budget. And you do know that the first area of severe cuts we're going to make will be to your package. Because I had a very nice package. I mean, I have to admit, I had a very nice, very nice package. He says, that's where we're going to start. And he says, now I'm here to tell you, they're not going to be cosmetic. They're going to be profound cuts to your financial package. And I looked at him and said, I understand that. Well, more silence. Then another deacon stood up and said, if you are willing to sacrifice your own financial status for this inclusion stuff, he said, there must be something to it. The meeting ended. Okay, so that was about 14, 15 years ago. So I just went on from there. And so, it, it, yeah, you, you lost people, right? No, I mean, you lost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We went down. Now, we, we well, at that time, we we're about 6,500. Now we're about 2,2500. How have you changed as a preacher through all that, Ken? Did, um, did both your sort of content, I mean, your content changed, obviously. The way you read the Bible changed, or at least you were more honest about the way you read the Bible. Um, the way that, did, did did it change in other ways? Did your style change? Did um, oh, yeah, um, yeah. How so? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, it just really helped me to uh, gain a better understanding of church as business and church as as organism. Church as church as the embodiment of Christ. You know, I had never really, I had never really made a distinction between the movement that Jesus started and the institution that Constantine started. Uh, but you know, those tensions are very, very real. And, um, you know, uh, in order to feed the institution, sometimes, many times the movement suffers yeah. and in order to feed the movement, many times the institution suffers. Isn't that true? And, and that yeah. the, uh, the institution at some level, I mean, I, I, I feel this tension in a, in a, in a much, uh, paler way, but it, it, my, my son, 14-year-old son said to me after a sermon recently, I thought in a way this was good. He'd been listening. But he said to me, that sermon was like an ad for church. It wasn't about God at all. And uh, and I was kind of stung by that. But I thought, you know, you're right. And, and what I found myself saying to him was, well, sometimes you have to boost the church up in order to have a place to talk about God, right? But that, but, but I think you're right. I mean, you experienced this in a very vivid way. The the values of Christ, the movement of the church, right? Even the, the, the lived reality of the resurrected Christ in our midst, 
Right. Um, that's not going to be constrained by an institution that has to worry about a balanced budget. I don't think Jesus was particularly Precise. concerned about budgets. That's right. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, and so, you know, it's just, it to me, it just, you know, calls into question, you know, the dynamics and the vitality of institution. And, you know, of course, since I'm still here and we're still an institution in the sense that we still have property and all of that, but, uh, but, but, but it's, it, it's called the, it, it's helped me to understand that in order for institutions to be true to the movement that gave them life, they've got to constantly be in a process of reformation. And that's very difficult for institutions because institutions, I mean, you know, they 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 thrive off of doing stuff that works. <laughs> you Absolutely, know? yeah. Uh, and, and churches are conservative. I mean, even progressive churches are conservative in some significant ways in terms of like being change resistant, slow to move. Um, do you feel now that now that there's been this shift um, nationally and and uh, and a shift going on right now to this day in the black church? Do you feel? I don't know. Validated? Do you feel uh, resentful at all? Like uh, yeah. I told you, I told you, you so. Know, you, know, you know, it's an interesting position because, of course, we're still growing. So I don't think it's ever a matter of, you know, I told you so. But I think it is a matter of saying, um, you know, there, there, there are some things that we need to look at if we are going to continue to be the church of Christ. And, you know, to the extent that I can help people to understand, you know, what it means to be identified with the salvation and the liberation of Christ and how that plays out in church life, then I think, you know, that's good. Let me switch the subject a little bit, Ken, uh, before I have to let you go, just because there's something yeah. I wanted to ask you about, something you've written recently. Um, this is actually, so this is out of the, the Wolves and Lambs Advent devotional that uh, I got an advanced copy of it. And this mm-hmm. is uh, something you wrote. The title is Liberation. Talking about Advent again. Advent means nothing if it doesn't mean greater freedom for all people who still live under the oppressions of social stigma, racial profiling, religious intolerance, gender bias, transphobia, and economic exploitation. Advent, Advent means nothing if it doesn't mean that wolves and lambs can coexist with equal and mutual respect for life. Advent, Advent means nothing if it doesn't mean that the babies born in majors have the same dignity and the same opportunities afforded to them as the babies born in mansions. So I read that the day after I got done reading uh, and having a church discussion of uh, the Ta-Nehisi Coates book, Between the World and Me. Mm-hmm. And that book, you know, paints such a bleak, bleak portrait of the opportunity for there to be the kind of change that needs to happen in order for babies born in mangers and babies born in mansions to have the same kind of um, opportunities, shots at life. Do you feel, and at some level when I read that book, I thought his atheism, Coates' atheism, like allows him to kind of speak the truth a little more plainly than religious people can sometimes. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when I read what you wrote as a person of faith, I thought, absolutely, right? We always have to have hope. Do you have strong hope that um, the kind of economic change that is necessary for there to be racial healing in America, are we capable of that? I think we're definitely capable. I think it takes courage. Um, You know, (laughs) I often say, you know, we need to go to the land of Oz and get some courage from somewhere because, because people, I think, have 
deep convictions that they never act upon, even in the church. And I think that a lot of life, institutional life and social life and just what it takes to, you know, concentrate on what you need to do to make it from month to month, week to week, you know, a lot of that, you know, um, mitigates against really taking the kind of uh, risky, courageous stands that are necessary for social change. But I think that if people are given opportunity to be true to what they really have in their hearts, that many of them, not all of them, but but many of them, a significant a remnant of them will, will, will rise to the occasion and, and understand that that's really what it requires. I think that with the changes that the institutional church is undergoing today, I think that the emphasis is definitely being placed back on our mission. What are we really called to do? Rather than being sort of a a spiritual gloss on the culture. Precisely, precisely. Rather than being, you know, a fixture of society, what are we really called to do? Because the fixture, the the, the fixture is is disintegrating. I mean, in in so many ways. So what are you left with? And and how do you, how do you reform? Uh, What is your next iteration of your conviction? One more question for you, Ken. Where do you, where does your courage come from? Uh, I think paying attention to my own story uh, and seeing how God has just ordered my steps. Um, you know, I've been blessed to um, have experienced the passion and the beauty uh, and the exuberance of, of of black worship, and I know how powerful that is uh, in the consciousness of people. Um, I'm, I've also been blessed to uh, sit in universities uh, where I could give a more critical, um, you know, objective assessment of of, 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 of of that black church experience. So I so I I, I I can balance the two. You know, I can appreciate it. I can understand its power. I can understand its beauty. At the same time, I can understand its limitations and its untapped potential. And so, you know, I, I, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a treacherous place to be because it's a constant balancing act, but I think it's a good place to be because I think that as we, you know, move out of the emphasis on the institution and get back to the focus on the movement, that we're going to have to have those kind of, you know, critiques and, and understandings in place uh, for the next iteration of church. I love it. Ken, thank you so much. It's funny, you know, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll edit this out, but I've sat in a lot of meetings with you, obviously, and uh, um, I've wanted to get to know you better and hear your story. So this is both going to be a wonderful episode of this podcast, but but uh, just for me personally, uh, what a nice opportunity to hear your story and to, and to get a better sense of who you are. I really appreciate it. Well, God be with you, and, and hopefully we'll get up to Chicago and see you sometime. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Elizabeth Palmer.